And so today, I want to encourage you to make some determinations, set some goals, not frivolous New Year's resolutions and all those I would like to and it'd be nice if, but some real determinations to change some areas and compartments of your life and begin immediately. You know, you have to make a commitment to yourself. You have to look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do it for myself. And ladies, don't be tempted to help make suggestions to your husband about what he could change. And guys, don't be thinking about while I'm preaching this morning about things you'd like for your husband to change. But this is about me and moving my life forward and becoming the best person that I could be. Not staying what I am necessarily, but finding ways that I can move my life forward by making personal changes and adjustments. No excuses and certainly no one else to blame. Put your character, put your reputation behind it and make up your mind that you're going to change some things about yourself. It's amazing how I hear people talking about changing the world, and yet they don't have the strength to change the slightest thing about themselves. You're not likely to change your world or your company or your career or your business or your family. You're not likely to change anything about your home if you can't change yourself. And so this series is about accepting the challenge to make personal changes and not pointing fingers at others that you wish would change. Critical to this process is intentionality. It's absolutely vital that we be very intentional. You know, you're not going to get better, and I'm not going to get better just because I keep living and breathing and counting birthdays. Just because I get up in the morning and live a day and go to bed at night and do it all over again doesn't mean my life is moving forward. Just because my body is moving doesn't mean my life is moving. There has to be intentionality. You've got to look and say, these are the areas that I'm targeting, and I am intentionally going to make some changes. You simply have to make up your mind, get a plan, and get started. It's like dieting. It's always next month, next January, and it just never seems to get here. You have to make up your mind, make a plan, and get started immediately. I want to show you a key from God's Word that helps us in this process. The book of Acts, chapter 3, verse 19, let's look at it. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before. Now, Put the first verse 19 back up and just leave it there for just a moment. Notice the first word, repent. Now, he's talking about sins and how that because we repent, God blots out or wipes away our sin. But for the purpose of our study today, I would like for you to apply the word repent to a broader scope than just your sin or mine. Repentance, you see, is a change of mind. Repentance is doing an about face, as if a person was looking one direction and they would turn and look a complete opposite. Repentance is a major paradigm shift. 
when the way you're looking at something changes radically and you begin to look at something differently. That's what repentance is all about. Now, the Scripture says that if we repent and it pertains to sin, it will be blotted out. But then he says a time or a season of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. Please consider this. If I change my mind, God will send me a new season. We don't just need a new year. We need a new season. You know, if you come to the place where you're tired of the same old, same old and things as they have been, you say to yourself, you know, I'm tired of that season. I want a new season. I, I want a new season in my life. How do we step into a new season? How do we go to a place we've never been and we really make forward motion and progress in our lives? It takes repentance. And I'm not just talking about repentance from sin, that certainly is application, but I'm talking about changing your mind about certain aspects and details of your life. You see, if you can't change your mind, you can't change your life. If you can't repent of something that may not be sin, but it needs to go, then you're never ever going to get over it. You've got to look at it different and think of it differently than you have before because repentance is what brings a new season in life. How many of you would say with me, Pastor, I need a new season in life? You'll never be the person you want to be without the strength to think differently. It seems like that our heart is the wellspring of our thoughts. The Bible says from the heart issue all the thoughts that come across the screens of our mind. So repentance is more than just thinking one thought and then changing it to something else. Repentance has a root in our heart. It goes much deeper than that. It isn't just thinking things different. The Bible is not preaching the power of positive thinking. The Bible is preaching new heart. A new change that starts deeper than the, the surface of our minds. And so when your heart changes, then your mind changes. But sometimes you have to change your mind and work it backwards. It seems to me like that I never really have a change in my heart until I've had a change in my mind. So my heart dictates what, is, what I'm thinking about, but what I'm thinking about has a direct impact on my heart. And so by learning to change my view of things, change my paradigm, change the way I see things, then I change the way I'm thinking, and ultimately that changes my life. There are moments in your life of personal realization. Have you ever had a moment when suddenly the fog cleared, the light came on, and suddenly you saw a situation more clearly than you'd ever seen it? Maybe you were dealing with a difficulty, a, tra a, tr a problem, a, a complex situation of some sort, and you just couldn't figure out how to get a handle on it and get it fixed, and then you had a moment of realization. Suddenly you saw cause and effect. This is happening, and that's causing this to happen. I don't want this to happen, so I need to go back and stop this. Moments of realization. You know, moments of realization are critical to the process of moving my life forward. As I look at different 
situations in my life and seasons of my life, it always moved forward after I had a moment of realization. And I have these moments at different times and places, but there is a pattern. I believe that there might be a pattern for you as well, where in certain environments and situations you have moments of realization. The greatest moments of realization I have is times of prayer and personal devotion. It's in that environment where I'm digging in deep and I'm drawing close to God, studying the Scripture and interacting with God, that suddenly I'll have a moment of realization. It just comes clear to me. Now, the Bible doesn't call it that. The Bible refers to it as a spirit of understanding, also a spirit of revelation, and a spirit of wisdom. But it's a moment when suddenly you understand and you see the workings of a thing and you have the wisdom to know how to change it. It's a revelation. It's an insight that you did not previously have. A spirit of understanding, a spirit of wisdom, and a spirit of revelation. I'll call it a moment of realization. When I'm worshiping, like this morning, you and I standing here, it's amazing how many times in a worship service I have a moment of realization. I'll be worshiping the king, and something will just come to me. Something will just flash before my mind, and suddenly I realize, oh, yeah, that's it. That's why. That's what I need to do. For me personally, I have moments of realization before daylight while I'm still in a uh, uh, a state of slumber, not fully asleep, but not awake. The sun isn't shining yet. The day hadn't begun, but I'm sort of slowly waking up, and, and things just come to me in those kind of moments. So what I have learned is when I have a moment of realization, it's a gift from God. It's a part of His working of grace, and I, I, I have to capture that moment. Because, you see, I've let them slip by. It's like when the light comes on, see everything you can see and record it as best you can because the light's going to go off in a second. And you're only going to keep what you can remember while the light was on. So when you have a moment of realization, it's like the light comes on and you can see things and understand things in that moment. But when the light goes off, you go back and say, wait a minute now, what was I thinking? So you have to capture it. You have to know, wait a minute, I, I, can, I can sense the light's on. Let me get a hold of this. I've been guilty in the past of just racing through the moment, get busy with other things, allow things to distract me, allow, allow things to pull me away mentally, and I missed it. Um, I've, I failed to understand the significance of that moment. I fail to realize the message of that moment. And so there, there are just moments in God when you have just insight and revelation and the light is on and you can see what you need to do and what, what's causing the problem and you can see a pathway out. But if you don't capture that moment, you lose it. Because it isn't just information, it's a grace. And grace is God's power and desire to do His will. And in that moment, there is a grace for you to make changes and to move your life forward. In that moment, and you have to capture the information, you have to capture the grace. So I want to encourage you 
to look, wait, and expect moments of realization. They're absolutely vital to the process of moving your life forward, moving your family forward, your career, your business, moving relationships forward, your walk with God, your ministry, all those things. It's absolutely important. Your finances, you can have a moment of realization. And so I want to encourage you to watch for those and try to capture those if you possibly can. It's in that moment that desire really begins to grow in me. Like, if I don't know what to do or how to do, and I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, hitting the proverbial wall, I'm not overly motivated because it's just, you know, I can't, I can't see my way clear. But once I get a glimpse, once a doorway seems to open and I see a path, I get extremely motivated. And desire rises up within me. And that desire is very, very important. You know, the vehicle you and I came to church in this morning needs fuel to operate. You could be driving a brand new vehicle straight off the showroom floor, everything in perfect working order. But without a fuel, it is not going to move six inches. And if you don't have desire that you have carefully captured and nurtured and pointed, directed, channeled, it's not going to work. You know, you don't change just because you live another day and celebrate another birthday. and You change because you want to change. And, and what drives me is that I really don't want to stay like I am. What drives me is that I believe that I can be better and my life can be better and that I can do more. That's what drives me. So your desire is the fuel that makes it all work. And I want to encourage you to capture that desire and keep it alive. And if you find someone else with a desire, whatever you do, encourage the desire in them. And be careful that you don't say things that might discourage or deplete their desire. Things like, oh, you're never going to change, or oh, I don't think you can do that, or oh, I doubt that. I'll have to see that to believe it. I don't want to be that kind of person. If you tell me, you know what, I believe I want to change this about my life. I want to be that kind of person. I want to help you do that. I believe you can get that done. But how often do we, how often do we discourage other people? How often do we discourage them, unreal, not realizing it? And we steal the vital desire they need to get the things done. So changing your mind leads to changing your thoughts, your words, and your deeds. When you just have a paradigm shift and you're looking at things differently, the process has begun and it's going to move to different thought patterns. It's going to move to different words and conversation, different language, and it's going to change your deeds. Your whole conversation changes when you change your heart and you change your mind. And when you change your mind, you change your season. I want to talk to you a moment about personal culture personal culture. All of us have a personal culture. This is the person we are. This is the person people see us as. This involves everything about my person, everything about my person, my value system, my belief system, my personal habits, my patterns of life, little things that may or may not be important, but they all make up 
the person I am. So I want to talk to you just for the next, next couple of moments about your personal culture. If you're the kind of person that's always early, that's your personal culture. If you're the kind of person that mostly is late, that's your personal culture. If you uh, are neatly groomed, that's your personal culture, and otherwise, that'd be your personal culture. If you're the kind of person that manages money well and is cautious about spending and careful about investing, that's your personal culture. If you're impetuous in spending and frequent, uh, frequently deal with debt and credit card issues, that's your personal culture. If your shoes are shined or they're not shined, that's your personal culture. The car you drive, the clothes you wear, the house you live in, the kind of work you do or don't do, that's all your personal culture. Your vocabulary, your education, um, your friends, all of that is personal culture. And I found that for me to move my life forward, I have to address issues in my own personal culture. And I can't change my life and my environment until I've changed something inside of me. And oftentimes, what's holding us back is not so much big things as it is a lot of little things. Little habits, little personal cultures that collectively reduce, lower the ceiling over our life and minimize the, the, the perimeters that we're working under. Little things. I found this um, to be true while studying um, Tom Corley's website on the habits of the rich. He calls it richhabits.net. And he outlines a few of the differences between the habits of people that are rich and the habits of people that are poor. I want you to listen to a few of these. It makes the point very clearly. 70% of wealthy eat less than 300 junk food calories per day. 97% of poor people eat more than 300 junk food calories per day. 23% of the wealthy gamble, 52% of the poor gamble. 80% of the wealthy are focused on accomplishing some single goal, while only 12% of the poor do this. 76% of the wealthy exercise aerobically four days a week. Only 23% of the poor do this. 63% of the wealthy listen to audiobooks during the commute to work, but versus 5% of the poor. 81% of the wealthy maintain a to-do list versus only 19% of the poor. We're comparing the personal culture of people that have done very well financially and people that are struggling. I want to go just a little further. You think about the difference in their personal culture. We're not talking about the difference in how they, what they do for a living or how much money they have invested. We're not talking about that. We're talking about their personal culture. He went on to say that 63% um, of wealthy parents make their children read two or more nonfiction books a month versus 3% of the poor. 70% of wealthy parents make their children volunteer 10 hours a, day, uh, uh, a month or more, but only 3% do this. 80% of the wealthy make happy birthday calls versus only 11% of the poor. I don't know where they get this stuff, but it's interesting. And it makes the point very well. 
that what is holding me back may not be the things I think is holding me back, but it may be a lot of small things, a lot of little things, a lot of personal things that together add up. Have you ever looked up and cl- up close and personal at corporate executives and how they live and what their personal culture is? Have you looked at presidents and senators and people that carry great responsibility and just look at their lifestyle? I'm not talking about the size of their home or, or the, the kind of car they drive. I'm just talking about their personal culture, how they live. Somehow all of that adds up to the person I'm going to be, the life I'm going to live, and the scope of my life. And if somehow I can get a hold of my personal culture, then I can change my life and I'll have the strength to make the changes that I want to make. Some of the areas that I'm concerned about would, first of all, be health. The kind of eating the kind of diet and conducting the kind of exercise that is needed to live a healthy life whatever it takes. Spiritual habits, my pattern of prayer and Bible study, my pattern of worship and attendance, my involvement in life teams and small groups, my personal ministry, what I'm giving back, what I'm doing for others, what I'm doing in Christ's behalf, the personal culture in the realm of my finances. What kind of personal culture do I have in the realm of my finances? Relational. Do I have healthy relationships around me? Are they growing stronger? Or do they need healing and need work? Am I building new relationships? What about the personal culture of my relationships? Then, of course, there's all kind of discussions about career, business, and education, and all these things. But it comes back to me. Not pointing my fingers at others and hoping others will change so that I somehow will change hoping my environment will change so maybe I can change, but saying, I'm going to change me, and then my environment will have to change. Can you say amen? Everybody breathe. Now, a lot of things you hear me preach, you can discount. Say, well, that's for somebody else, but not today, (laughs) right? Not today. You know, if you study habits, little habits that make up our personal culture, you find out that the way to change the big aspects of your life is to start small and start working on little aspects of your life and the muscle you build changing little things about your life is the same muscle you're going to need to change big things about your life. I mean, it just makes sense. If you can't lift five pounds, you sure can't lift 500. But if you keep lifting five, pretty soon you can lift 50 and then maybe 100, and who knows? You may be a 500-pound guy. I don't know. I'm just saying that you can't start large. You have to start small and build the muscle you need to make the changes you can make. You may have small habits that are seen to be inconsequential, but you realize it reduces you as a person. And if you can get a hold of those habits and begin to change those small little habits, then you build the muscle to change bigger things in your life. So, you know, I have people that get motivated and all excited and they make commitments and they're going to change major aspects of their lives and turn their life upside down overnight. And I'm like, let's make a plan here. Can I help you with your plan? (laughs) Can I help you with your plan? Because you don't start big, you start small. 
You know, I found out that most marriages are plagued by small habits that could easily be changed. Most marriages are reduced in quality and happiness and harmony because of little habits that either together the man and wife does or one of them. It's amazing how that changing little habits in our marriages can make such huge differences. So I want to encourage you to start small. If you Google habits, there's lots of information about the nature of habits. You'll find out quickly that there's three components of that habit cycle. There is the trigger, what triggers the desire, what triggers the behavior, and then there is a behavior, and then there's the sense of reward. We find out that when we do something that has some measure of reward to it, it creates patterns in our biological patterns, rewards that are triggered in our brain. And we have to learn how to exaggerate the sense of reward, the sense of victory, the sense of accomplishment, the sense of goodness when we do something good and minimize it when we do something that is not so good. Because we have to create new pathways and new patterns biologically in our mind and break the cycle of habits. We have to be conscious of the behavior, first of all. You know, we're talking about small habits. Many times we have habits that we don't even realize we're doing. Now, your wife knows you do it, but you don't even realize you're doing it, guys. But you have habits that your wife has observed time and time again, and she sees them, but in the moment you're conducting that habit, habitual behavior, you don't even realize it. You're totally unconscious of it. Isn't it amazing how God created this human body where we could do things unconscious? You know, I drove here this morning, took us about, I don't know, 35, 45 minutes to get here, and I hardly remember starting the engine and shifting the vehicle into gear. I don't remember speeding up or slowing down or making a turn or stopping at a light or a stop sign. It was all habit, and I was doing it all unconscious. It scares me to death. You know, I travel from Houston to Beaumont on a regular basis, and I believe that truck could go from my church to my home in Beaumont without anybody driving it. I just think it could just turn it on and turn it loose, and it'd drive to Beaumont for me because it is so stinking automatic and habitual that I make that trip all the time. So the first thing I have to do, if there's something I want to change, I have to be conscious of doing it when I'm doing it. The second thing I need to do is I need to understand why I am doing it when I'm doing it, where I am, when I am, why I am, who I am doing it with. Because sometimes our environment and the situation is a clue or a cue as to how we can overcome that habit in our lives. So first you have to become uh, conscious of the behavior while you're doing it, and then, then you can begin to make the changes you make. If you're doing things you're not conscious of, it's very difficult to change those things. So you have to be conscious of it and begin to reprogram your brain and retrain your life. And let me say this. If you make a commitment to change some small thing in your life that you think will help you build the muscle to change some bigger things, remember this. Have a plan to restart when you fail. 
Because you know how it is. You say, I'm going to change this, I'm going to start this, I'm going to stop that. And you go for three days, four days, five days a week at the most, and suddenly you're back to your old pattern. You're like, whoop, sorry about that. I don't guess I'm going to be able to do it. I tried, but I failed. No, right from the start, make up your mind that I'm going to make this change, and when I stumble, I'm going to restart my program all over again. Now, I'm not planning on failing. I'm not planning on quitting. But I am prepared that if I stumble, if I fall, if I drop back into old pattern, I'm going to jumpstart it all over again. And if you will keep jumpstarting and jumpstarting and jumpstarting and starting again, you'll still be building the muscle you need. And pretty soon, that negative behavior, that negative habit will be gone in your life, and you will have built new ones. So just right from the start, make a plan to say, if I stumble and fall, if I quit for two days or three days or a week, I'm going to pick it back up and I'm going to start again because I will not quit until I'm done. Another good suggestion might be this. Write it down. God spoke to the prophet in Habakkuk 2 and gave him a powerful word about the future. And he said to him, write it down. Make it plain so that others can read it and run with it. Sometimes it's important that you write things down. Make a commitment. Put it on paper. Have you ever uh, struggled to remember someone's name? So you grabbed something or pulled out your phone and you wrote it down, and as soon as you wrote down their name, you had a picture of it to go along with the audio. And so you found out that if I will write someone's name down or write a bit of information down, once I write it, once I type it in, then I, I've captured it because I have a picture of it. When you want to change some part of your life, just say, you know what? I'm going to write it down. I'm going to write it down. And all of a sudden, you move to a new level and you're in a, a stronger position than you were before. Another suggestion would be talk to someone about it. How many of you, don't raise your hand, but it, how many of you have made a commitment to make a change in your mind and in your heart? Just up there say, I'm going to change that. But then you didn't. And no one knew. There were no consequences. Oh, we've all done that, I'm sure. When you tell somebody you want to make a change, suddenly you're more obligated. Your word is at stake. Your character's on the line, Right? And that's what you have to do. If you say, you know, I want to move my life forward, I want to make some changes, you've got to put your word on the line. You've got to put your character behind it. Put your character behind it. So write it down. Talk to someone about it. And try to talk to someone about it that might encourage you, not discourage you. Someone that will help you, not hurt you. Someone that believes in you, not someone that has given up on you. Write it down. Talk to somebody about it. And then pray about it with someone. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, Jesus said, I also tell you this. If two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask of my Father in heaven, we'll do it for you. Wow, there's power and agreement. You know, get somebody to pray with you about it and release a power because it's not about you and I just sucking it up and getting it done, but it's about us relying on the power of the Holy Spirit and His strength within us to help us do the things 
that we want to do. Now, the Apostle Paul gave to us what is called the fruit of the Spirit. It's given to us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, right? And he lists nine fruits of the Spirit. These fruits represent the influence of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. So when the Holy Spirit comes in me, it is going to influence me to joy, to peace, to be kind and long-suffering, all of these wonderful things. Can anybody tell me what the ninth fruit of the Spirit is? I heard it over here. Self-control. Wow. So the influence of the Holy Spirit living inside of me is self-control. Self-control over what? Anything. Anything. Any area of my life that I feel weakened to, any desire or craving, any kind of habit, anything going on in my life, the Holy Spirit living inside of me gives me self-control where I can look my, at myself and say, no. I said no. And no means no. And make it stick. So when God asks us to make changes in our lives, large or small, sinful or not, He gives us the Holy Spirit so that we would have the strength and the ability to do what we need to do. So at the end of the day and at the end of our lives, we have no one to blame and we have no excuses to make. We have everything we need to be the me that I really want to be.